Hi, everyone. Please follow along with me. This, then, is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we might also reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured, we are dishonoured. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we blessed. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with that, what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? Excellent. Evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Mark. There's a few people here I haven't met. It's nice to meet you. I'm one of the pastors. Um, and I'm really 
thankful this happens every now and then, providentially, uh, what we end up uh, looking at in the Bible on any given week just lines up perfectly with other things that are going on. I think the fact that it's the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church and that we're looking at 1 Corinthians 4 today is real kindness from God. So I hope it's enriched by what we've already prayed for our brothers and sisters around the world. Let me pray for us and then uh, we'll have a think about that passage together. Loving Heavenly Father, we, we really do thank you for the privilege that we have to be in this room freely tonight without fear. Uh, we thank you that we have such abundant access to your word. Uh, and so, Lord, we, we just pray that in this time that we get to, to think and to hear from you as you speak to us, that we wouldn't take it for granted because we know that there are so many of our brothers and sisters around the world who would love to be able to be so free in uh, their worship of you. Uh, so please make use of this time for our good, for your glory, uh, so that we would be uh, true disciples of Jesus, ready to pay the cost of following him. We ask in his name. Amen. Uh, I wonder, um, I want to start tonight by asking you, what, what do you think it will look like for you if you follow Jesus? Um, I don't know everyone in this room. So, you know, if you're not a Christian and you're thinking about what is it these Christians believe, these ones who follow Jesus, what's that going to look like if I do that? Maybe that's a question you're kicking around in your head. Or even as a Christian, that's a question worth thinking about from time to time. What do I expect life will look like as a follower of Jesus? And I guess the answer to that question really depends on who you understand Jesus to be, right? Well, Christians, we understand that Jesus is the king. He is the king of the universe, the, the risen, resurrected, reigning, victorious king of the universe who's sitting on the throne in heaven right now, ruling all things. He's defeated sin and death, and it's him that we're following. So what do you think it's going to look like for you as you follow King Jesus? You got a picture in your mind? The church that uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to at this point uh, the church in Corinth, they thought they had an answer to that question, an expectation of what it should look like. They sort of reasoned, well, look, you know, if Jesus is the king of the universe, if he's conquered sin and death, and if we're following him, following in the footsteps of his victory, then our lives probably are going to look pretty victorious too. Uh, we should probably expect health and comfort and wealth and pleasure and success. That was kind of their mentality. And so for the Corinthians, how they then expected their church to look and how they expected their leaders particularly to look went down that road. Corinth was a city that, that loved impressive leaders, charismatic speakers, wealthy entrepreneurs. You know, the, the, the lifestyle in Corinth was one where you were always just striving to get a little bit more, climb up that social ladder, more wealth, more power, more success, more prestige, more pleasure. And so the, the problem that kind of happened in Corinth prior to Paul writing this was that uh, the, the Christians in Corinth were not being persecuted for their faith. It was actually quite comfortable to be a Christian in Corinth. And so they started to adopt this idea that, hey, you know what, we could actually fit in in this city that we're living in pretty comfortably. You know, we could have everything that Jesus is offering us and we could have everything that Corinth can offer us as well. We could have the best of both worlds. Salvation, great, give it to me. But also, oh, we can be a bit Corinthian. Pleasure, success, status, power. Yeah, why not? And so what ended up happening in the situation in Corinth and in situations like it 
uh, is that you, you start to see the Bible and the message of the Bible get squeezed. You start to see following Jesus get squeezed into the mold of the culture that they're operating in. And so these Corinthians, they had a very Corinthian brand of Christianity, if I can put it like that. And so what they did, you see, was that they emphasized Jesus as the mighty king. They just didn't mention the part where, embarrassingly, he died on a cross. That was sort of underplayed a little bit. You know, they, they would stress that as Christians, you know, we, we're forgiven, we're free. They just kind of overlooked the part where you are called as a Christian to fight your sin every day. They would say, well, we've got the Holy Spirit of God living in us. Just not so much mention the part where the Spirit is calling you to a life of self-denial and self-sacrifice. They would say, we're, we're reigning with Jesus. But they would ignore the fact that the pattern of the Christian life is first the cross and only then the crown. And these kind of Corinthian attitudes... I tell you that they are alive and well in our culture today. They are flourishing in the West. Uh, the shelves of Christian bookshops are groaning under the weight of books, which I will say you will never find for sale at WBC. Books like these, Your Best Life Now, Destined to Reign, books which promote this image of the Christian life as a victorious one, uh, as, as somehow that that's the norm. And, and can I say millions of people have bought into this type of Christianity. And maybe that's not you. Maybe you've never read these books, maybe never heard of these writers, these pastors. I suspect for us as Australians, you know, we are a little bit more immune to the really kind of crass, you know, private jet flying type of prosperity preaching that is out there. We don't get as much of that here. But I, I do think this is where this gets sharp for you and I as we come to this topic. I wanna ask you a question. When do you expect life to go well for you as a Christian? You stopped and thought about that? When do you expect life to go well for you as a Christian? When, when do you, you, know, you expect all things to kind of just come together for your good? Uh, we are part of a culture right now, 21st century Australia, that is deep in its idolatry of comfort. It is one of our greatest idols, I think. People gear their whole lives around the pursuit of pleasure and comfort and ease, maximising leisure, minimising work. That's the aim of the Australian game. And our culture tells us that that, that's the good life. And I can't help but wonder whether some of that way of thinking may have crept into us as Christians living in this culture. When do you expect that life will go well for you as a follower of Jesus. You thought about this. It's possible, likely in fact, that you understand, I hope you understand, that there will be times as a Christian where life gets hard. I hope you know that. Uh, there will be periods of financial hardship where you'll have health scares, there'll be relational breakdowns. It won't all be a, red, a bed of roses. I trust that you know that, but I wonder... How many of us have this kind of unspoken assumption that those kind of difficulties in life, those periods of trial and suffering, we just think they're going to be brief. You know, they're the exception, not the norm. And when they do come along, they're going to resolve themselves pretty quickly and we'll be the better off for it. I wonder how many of us have that kind of expectation. But we think that following the risen, triumphant, reigning Lord Jesus means that everything will work out for us in this life, even if we don't say it out loud. 
I hope you see the problem with that kind of way of thinking, even before we look at this passage, because I hope you know that that's not the kind of life that Jesus promised us as his followers. It's certainly not the kind of life that the Apostle Paul pictures for followers of Jesus here in 1 Corinthians 4. Now, as, as we come to the passage, you, you probably noticed, and if you've been here over the course of this series so far, the first four chapters of this book are really written talking about Christian leaders, uh, what, what a pastor, a faithful gospel minister is supposed to look like. And so it's possible when you come to this chapter, you may be thinking, well, I'm not a pastor. This has got nothing to do for me, except perhaps if I ever change church and I want to know whether this is a good church to get involved in, maybe it'll help me there. I want to I say this chapter would be helpful for that decision. But I think this is more immediately applicable to you as well, because if you look at chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, see what Paul says there. Even after talking about what a faithful gospel minister looks like, he says, verse 16, 17, therefore I urge you to imitate me. Paul makes it clear that, that faithful gospel ministers, they are models. And so as God's spirit teaches us from this chapter tonight, what a faithful gospel minister should look like, he's also, I want to say this very clearly, he's teaching you what your life should look like as well. Because the pattern for faithful gospel ministers is the pattern for everyone. We're going to learn tonight what following Jesus should look like in this world. And the passage breaks down into two, I think, pretty neat uh, halves. You've got verses 1 to 7, where the big emphasis from Paul here is he's trying to tell the Corinthians, just faithfully teach the message of the cross. That's what I want you to do. Faithfully teach the message of the cross. And then from verse 8 onwards, where he talks to them about faithfully living the life of the cross. That's where we're going. So let's have a look, first of all, at verses 1 to 7, uh, where his emphasis is to the Corinthians to faithfully teach the message of the cross. We'll read from verse 1 again. Verse 1, this then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and, of those, and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. You remember last week, chapter 3, Paul has uh, basically been saying to the Corinthians, guys, just stop making such a big deal out of human leaders. Stop stressing about which one you follow and obsessing over who's better than the other. Who really cares? That's kind of been his message in chapter three. It's God who grows churches. It's God who forgives sins. It's God who provides the Holy Spirit. So just stop obsessing over human leaders. Okay, fair enough, Paul, chapter three. What then should we think about human leaders? Here's the answer, verse 1. Human leaders are just servants. They're just stewards. That, that word there, well, there's two words that we've got there as those entrusted. It's literally the word steward. A steward is somebody who perhaps works for a wealthy person and they get given some great responsibility to take care of, some land to look after, some money to invest and make a profit with, that sort of thing. And Paul says that, that's what gospel ministers are. They're just servants and stewards of God's mysteries. That's the fundamental job of any Christian leader to steward, that is faithfully teach, announce, pass on the mysteries that God has revealed. And he's referring there, of course, to the gospel, uh, that wonderful truth about who God is and what he has done to save us. That's the mystery he's referring to. And it's a mystery in the sense that it was a total surprise, right? No human would have ever come up with this message of Christianity. 
uh, Paul has explained that earlier in the letter as well, that you would never get a, a kind of a working group together, have a brainstorm about how God should save the world. And they would never in a million years have come up with the idea that, yeah, God should save the world by sending his only son to die a death on a cross as a human. That'll be a perfect idea. No, it would never happen that way. The cross looks like foolishness, weakness. But actually, Paul's been saying, no, it's God's power for salvation. That's the message that has been entrusted to gospel ministers. And so as this, this life-saving, sin-destroying, forgiveness-winning, death-defeating message of the gospel has been given to us, a faithful leader has to faithfully teach that message that focuses on the cross of Christ. It's God's message, God's mysteries, God's gospel. And so it's, it's God's opinion. That's the one that actually really matters. Keep reading with me from verse 2. Paul says, Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. You see, Paul really couldn't care less if he doesn't measure up to the Corinthian ideal of what a, a powerful, impressive leader looks like. Who cares, he says. I'm not going to stand before you on judgment day. I'm standing before the Lord God. Uh, he's the one that I care about, whose opinion I care about. And so he says to them, just, just stop. Stop making those worldly assessments about human leaders. Stop being swayed and wowed by how impressive their growth is and how clever their communication is. His point is that we need to be humble as we look at human leaders and recognise, verse 5, that there's an awful lot that's hidden at the moment and that will only be exposed on that judgment day. It's only then that we will know the heart motivations of the people involved. So don't judge, says Paul, but please don't misunderstand. He's not saying that we can't make any assessments about human leaders and churches and things right now. He just, his point is, make the right assessment. Assess them based on God's criteria. Look for faithfulness to the message of the cross. That's how you assess a church. Are they faithful to the message of the cross? This is not saying, well, you know, are there crosses on the walls of the building? Is it in their logo? Is there a passing reference to the cross in a sermon every now and then? That's not faithfulness to the cross. Rather, is the cross of Christ, the saving work of Jesus in his death and resurrection, is that the focus every time the Bible is taught? Because it is the focus of the Bible. Are they stewarding the mysteries of God in order to please their master? That's how you assess the faithfulness of a church. Only God's verdict on this matters, though. Only God's verdict matters. And that's true for leaders and pastors and churches. But I want to say it's also generally true for every single one of you as well. You know, uh, you are scrutinized and assessed and people make judgments about you in all the different spheres that you interact with people in. But none of their opinions of you matter. They don't. Only God's opinion of you matters the one before whom you will stand on that final day and he will pronounce a verdict on your life. Death or life. Eternity without him or eternity with him. It's his voice, his judgment, his verdict. That's the only one that matters for every single one of us. And there is a very interesting implication of that. 
if you think about this, it's there in verse 4, that if you only worry about God's approval of you, it does two things. Firstly, it frees you from that burden, that crippling kind of weight of caring about what other people think of you. And that's a wonderful thing to experience, truly. But secondly, for Paul, particularly here, it changes the way you view yourself. If you only care about God's verdict on your life, it changes how you view yourself. You see what he says there at the end of verse three? He says, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Now, that, that reference there to conscience, uh, your conscience is your inner sense of right and wrong. It's your moral compass that God has given you and every one of his uh, created beings, his created humans, uh, that tells you that whether uh, what you are doing is right or wrong. But Paul acknowledges here that for him, even though he has the Holy Spirit within him, even though he is an apostle of God, that his conscience can be wrong. And that's true. Your conscience can be wrong. Your conscience can be overly sensitive or it can be too insensitive. It can be wrong in both directions. And that's significant because in our culture, you are being told on a near daily basis that your, co your conscience is infallible. If you appeal to your conscience, it is the highest court of appeals from which there is no exemptions. If you are true to your heart, that's all that matters. That's what the culture says. But Paul says, no, well, my conscience might be wrong. Uh, but my conscience says I'm okay, but that doesn't make me innocent. It's God's opinion of me that matters. He knows what's going on in my heart. And if that's true for Paul, how much do you think that ought to be true for us? I just warn you, friends, to be humble as you appeal to your conscience. Your conscience can be wrong. Okay, so verse five, 1 to 5, he's establishing here that there is this real need to be faithful to the message of the cross. And there's a real need to be humble as we assess the ministry of leaders and churches because it's God's salvation and so it's important that we're faithful to him. It's God's judgment that matters. And so we live for his opinion, not anyone else's. Okay, so that's what he said. What does that then mean for the church in Corinth? What difference does that make? Verse six. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. Now, that's an interesting uh, kind of phrase that he, he quotes there. It's not a phrase found in scripture. It's just a saying that he seems to pull out of thin air. What is he referring to, referring to there? Don't go beyond what is written. Well, anytime that Paul uses that little phrase, what is written, he's referring to scripture. He's referring to the Bible, specifically the Old Testament. That was the extent of his Bible at the time. Uh, and so I think Paul's point by quoting that here is he's saying to this church in Corinth that are moving in this decidedly unbiblical direction and who are chasing after leaders who are not anchored in the central truth of the Bible. He, he's drawing a line for them. And he's saying, guys, don't you get it? That uh, faithful leaders are really concerned to stick to the truth of the Bible and to not go beyond it. And if you've got to assess the leaders and the churches that you like, you've got to assess them by that standard. Do they stick to the Bible? Do they focus on the central truth of Christ crucified? Because if you get that, Paul says, you don't get puffed up uh, in being a follower of one leader over and against the other. Because you start to see faithful leaders for what they truly are. Do you know what faithful pastors, leaders, that kind of thing, do you know what we are? 
we are just like the donkey that Jesus rode into Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19. You know, that donkey as he's heading in in that final week of his life. What a privilege for that donkey to have the saviour of the world on his back and to have the crowds there greeting them as they, as they wander into Jerusalem. But at the end of the day, it's just a donkey. There's nothing impressive about the donkey. What's impressive is the one that the donkey's carrying. So it is with pastors, leaders, ministers, whatever you want to call us. We are just donkeys. <laughs> there is nothing impressive about your favourite minister. The impressive thing is the one they're speaking about. Don't put your leaders on a pedestal. Boast in Christ alone. Care about the faithful teaching of the message of the cross. That's what God wants from us. That's the first thing that we see in this passage. Second thing that we see in this passage, the second instruction from Paul is to faithfully live the life of the cross. Faithfully live the life of the cross. I'll play a little game for you with these verses. Uh, there are two pictures of the Christian life in this section of the passage. We're going to play spot the difference, okay? You reckon you're up for that? See if you can spot the subtle differences between the two pictures of the Christian life going on here. Okay, here's picture one, verse eight. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign. And that without us. How I wish that you'd really begun to reign so that we might also reign with you. Okay, there's picture one. Here's picture two. Verse nine. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured. We are dishonoured. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. Did you spot the difference? It's subtle, isn't it? <laughs> no, it's not subtle. It's glaringly obvious, the two very different pictures of the Christian life that are being contrasted here, right? On the one hand, everything that you want as a Christian, you're rich, you're reigning, triumphant. On the other hand, something that you would scrape off the bottom of your shoe. That's the contrast. Now, follow-up question for you. Which of those two pictures of the Christian life is the authentic one? The Corinthian version or the Apostles version? Don't answer. I can read your thoughts anyway, and you're all wrong. <laughs> the answer is both, actually. Both are genuine, authentic visions of the Christian life. So what is, what's Paul's problem here then? If they're both true, what's his problem? Well, you get, you get an, a, a little answer here. If you pay attention to the words in this passage that refer to time, okay? Did you notice a few of them? Verse eight, uh, already you have all you want, he says about the Corinthians' supposed triumphant Christianity. Already, compared to verse 11, verse 13, he says, verse 11, to this very hour, we go hungry. Verse 13, we are the garbage of the world right up to this moment. You see, the Corinthians are not wrong to see that the Christian life is about being rich and full and reigning with Jesus. They're just wrong about when that happens. They are confusing life on this earth now with life in the future in God's perfected new creation paradise. 
You know, if you, if you trust Christ, then one day you will reign with him over the universe. If you trust Christ, then one day you will be so full as after one of those most magnificent wedding feasts. If you trust Christ, then one day you will be so rich that it will make Jeff Bezos look like a pauper. But not yet. Not here. Not now. Paul's point here is do not expect life here on this earth to be what God has promised for you in heaven. I want to be clear here to say that God might bless you in this life with health and wealth and comfort and all good things. And if he does, then thank him for those good gifts and steward them well. Use them for the building up of his kingdom, for the blessing of others. But don't make the mistake of thinking that God has guaranteed you what he has only promised you in the future. Don't make that mistake. That, I want to say, is a very dangerous and seductive mistake to make. I want you to imagine for a second that uh, you've booked a holiday at the end of this year, over summer, and it's a great one. You are going to go to a resort in Fiji. Boy, oh boy, it's going to be great. Infinity pools everywhere, top world-class chefs, just food on call 24-7. Man, you're looking forward to it. It is going to be spectacular. The problem is that you know because you're leaving on Boxing Day, that the journey there is just going to be horrendous. You're going to head to the airport really early because you had to buy those cheap tickets to get there. And there's going to be a million people there because every man and his dog's travelling internationally now. So it's going to be chaos. It is going to be stress. You know also that when you land in Fiji, it's a three-hour taxi ride on an unsealed road to get to the resort. So that's not so great. Now, imagine that you don't tell your children about that part. (laughs) Imagine you tell your children about this wonderful resort that you're heading to and how fun it's going to be and all the marvellous things you're going to experience. And now imagine the day of your departure. (laughs) You rouse your children at 3.45 in the morning. (laughs) They get up bleary-eyed. You shove them in the train at Unandera Station on the way to the airport. They get in those uncomfortable economy-class seats on the plane across. And then that non-air-conditioned taxi ride at the end. Boy, oh boy. Do you think in that moment that you might hear a little voice of complaint from your darling children? I suspect you might. Just a, a murmur of dissent that what they are experiencing now is not everything that you have promised them that was going to be so fantastic about this holiday. I think you probably would hear a few complaints. Now, look, that's a trivial kind of example. I understand that. It's only a holiday. But translate it and think about what would happen if you had been led to believe that the Christian life is going to be one of bliss. What then when cancer strikes? Unemployment. When you are crushed by the demands of caring for an ageing parent or a struggling child. I think you'll do more than just complain in that moment, more than just feel a bit disappointed. I think you'll be tempted to throw in the towel, won't you? Friends, God has saved us for an unimaginably rich and blessed eternity in paradise. But make no mistake, he tells us time and time again that the journey to that destination is one of taking up our cross. It is a journey of hardship and self-denial And we tend to forget about that in our affluent, comfortable Western culture where we don't experience persecution, uh, where we feel as if 
too often, we can actually have everything that our culture tells us is good and everything that the Bible has to offer us. You know, we love to hear that kind of promise. Yeah, best life now. Oh, I'd love that. Sign me up. Where's the problem with that? I, I imagine being a part of a church that tells you that you can live such a life now, such a blessed, victorious life, that that's a really enlivening place to be. Because you'd be told, wouldn't you, all this, this kind of uplifting talk about achieving your potential, all this messaging, God is on your side, he's got a wonderful purpose for your life, you have a destiny to shape the world, all that kind of talk. I think it would be a very enlivening place to be. But if that's all the talk about victory, and if there's never any talk about brokenness and self-sacrifice, if it's all talk about fulfilling yourself and never talk about denying yourself, if it's all talk about success and never about just faithfulness, then I think you have to say that that is a very different picture of Christianity than the Apostle Paul gives us here in this passage. And I think you have to fear what will happen when the realities of life hit people who have been fed those expectations. Our Lord Jesus said, Mark chapter 8, 34, whoever wants to be my disciple must, must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. The pattern of life that Jesus calls us to is the cross first and then the crown. And that is true not only for gospel ministers, pastors, leaders, but for anyone who would be a disciple of Jesus. So Paul urges them, as we finish this section, he urges them to imitate a cross-shaped life. Have a read with me from verse 14. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you, Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. He has spoken harshly in this section. He's been sarcastic and mocking to a degree, but it's because he loves them and he doesn't want to see them get destroyed. Paul knows that the only way to heaven is to follow Christ and to take up your cross. And so he says, look, I'm going to send Timothy to you. Uh, he will teach you the things that I taught and the way of life that I have modelled. And those two things, they're the same thing. It's the cross that I taught and it's the cross that I lived. And it should, it should be no surprise to us as Christians that the way of life for us in Christ is the way of life like Christ. That shouldn't be a surprise for anyone who's a Christian, should it? But we need to remind each other of that. Just as Paul sends Timothy to remind the Corinthians to live a cross-shaped life, we need to remind each other to do that. Because, you know, you, you can be offered the Corinthian, everything's going to be wonderful in your life kind of Christianity, or I can tell you that it's going to be hard and that it's going to require self-denial and struggle and sacrifice. And which one are you going to want to listen to and want to hear? Paul's advice here is forget which one you want to be true. Ask the question of which one is true. What is it that Jesus has promised us that life following him will look like? The truth is the way of the cross. And we need to remember that uncomfortable 
costly truth. And I actually think that we need to make peace with that pretty quickly. Um, the Australian Christian Book of the Year this year was a book called Being the Bad Guys by a guy called Stephen McAlpine. Uh, in this book, McAlpine argues that the days of Christianity's you know, comfortable place in Western society are fast coming to an end. And he uh, observes really that the tide is turning on us. And uh, increasingly, Christianity is being viewed as the bad guy in society. Christianity is no longer just you know, one option among many. Christianity is a problem. That's how the world sees us now, or is increasingly seeing us. And McAlpine spells out that one of the implications of that, if that's true, one of the implications is that the idea that Christians can have that kind of unbridled happiness and success and comfort and still be faithful to Jesus, that idea is going to be shown really soon for what it is, an absolute fantasy. Christians in the West are waking up to the fact that if they follow Jesus, they are soon going to be seen as the scum of the world. This is what McAlpine says. Jesus is explicit that self-denial, not self-fulfillment, is the path to life. Jesus calls his disciples to make the costly decision to take up their cross and die to themselves in exchange for the finding and saving of their lives. There is great reward in self-denial. It's just not now, or at least it's not fully now. Friends, we need to help each other as the tide turns to live the life of the cross. We need to model for one another lives of self-sacrifice and self-denial. We need to learn, as Paul says here, to bless when we are cursed, to endure when we are persecuted, and to answer kindly when we are slandered, because there is great reward in self-denial. It's just not yet, not here, not now. So please, friends, don't be discouraged. That's the point of this message. Don't give up. When the bubble inevitably bursts on Corinthian Christianity, remain faithful to the message of the cross and the life of the cross. And remember, as the German pastor and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, that there will be no crown wearers in heaven who were not cross bearers on earth. Let me pray for us. Almighty God, we confess to you that we have desired what is of this world. We have thought that we can have everything that you are offering and everything that the world tells us is good as well. Lord, please help us to see that delusion for what it is. Please forgive us for our double-mindedness. And please help us to hear those words of our Saviour Jesus clearly every single day that if we are going to be his disciples, we must deny ourselves and take up the cross and follow him. Help us to do that because we know, Lord, and we trust your promises that there is great reward in self-denial. We trust the wonderful future that you've told us about. We thank you that you do spare us from persecution and you do grant us blessings and comforts in this life, Lord, but save us from the mistake of thinking that that is guaranteed. Help us to be ready to follow you whatever the cost. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.